presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Good afternoon and welcome into White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. We've got you for the next hour. It is our first one-hour off-season edition of White Sox Weekly this offseason, October 14, 2013. Playoffs still moving on, and man, have there been some big-time upsets. At least in terms of the chalk, you know, there's some upsets in the playoffs. The ALCS and NLCS are set. We have to wait a while for more baseball. Not until tomorrow do we get the playoff bracket back and going. That's a topic for a conversation. Oh, I'd say in a couple of minutes. We've got a lot of White Sox-focused things as well. But, you know, during these playoffs, and if you've been listening to the show in the off-season past, you, you kind of know like to focus a little bit in on the playoffs, kind of some news and notes sort of thing, uh, some uh, reflection on, on some of those series as much as we watched of them, and kind of uh, you know, dovetail those into how it may or may not affect the White Sox or the AL Central in the coming season. So we'll do that a little bit here to start the show. We've got White Sox rumors out. An esteemed local baseball reporter has uh, has a name that's been connected to the White Sox. So we'll get into that in a little bit as well. And since that name does a little bit of his work behind the plate, I thought what better place to start our off-season review preview series. It's a staple of White Sox Weekly here in the off-season. It's where we look back before we look forward at the state of each position going through the offseason for the White Sox. Obviously, 2023 did not go the way the White Sox wanted. Didn't go the way a lot of people rooting for the White Sox wanted it to go. However, got to take a look at each position and see how you get better, how you move forward with the long-term and short-term prospects are for each and every position. So that's what we'll do here over the next couple of weeks. And like I said, due to the rumors that have been out here the last couple of days, we will start with the catching position. But first, like I mentioned... A little bit of playoff conversation. I don't know how much you've been watching these playoffs. I completely get if you are of the, uh, the the Darren Jackson philosophy. Baseball season ends. You're not in the playoffs. Baseball season ends. I, I completely get that. If you're a fan that's kind of in the middle, uh, like I have been in this offseason, a little bit different for me. I, you know, in the past, I have sat down and watched just about every second of postseason baseball that I could get my hands on. Just that, that's that's the kind of fan I am. But as the wheel turns and, and we get older and move on to different phases in our life, you know, I've, I've got a young daughter. She's going on 10 months now. And I find that most of my nights are, are spent cleaning up uh, meals, uh, hers, not mine. Uh, or sometimes they're hers and I'm just eating the rest of them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it takes a little bit of time away from your ability to consume playoff baseball. So I thought, you know, it's kind of jogged my mind. I, I know a lot of fans, a lot of White Sox fans, a lot of people older than I am or, or even younger than I am at certain points uh, have kids and maybe aren't tuning into these playoffs as, as closely as they should. Although the ratings are, are proving to be a pretty good thing uh, for Major League Baseball. But I wanted to get into, you know, some of the results, um, some of my kind of philosophies uh, about the playoffs, about how I watch them and how I consume them and how I kind of. I don't know, rank these teams to a certain degree. And obviously, um, some things that have been said about teams that have been bounced out of the playoffs here uh, concerning some of those players and what the offseason plans for those teams and how the White Sox might be able to take advantage play into that whole thing. So the ALCS is set. It's the Rangers and Astros. 
Uh, pretty cool, bittersweet, uh, difficult at times, but I think for others um, and in other situations, other circumstances, I'd say, Kind of cool to see Jose Abreu contribute in such a meaningful way to the Astros here over the last couple of games. Hit a couple of big big homers um, and has driven in a few after a, a really, really tough season. By a lot of measurements, um, the Astros had the worst performance, uh, production rather, from first base in the 2023 season. And yet here is Jose Abreu with a couple of big hits to power them through and into the ALCS for the seventh straight season in my mind that's a dynasty and we're going to talk a lot about kind of you know playoff performance uh underperformance what constitute to me seven straight alcs that that is that is a dynasty of some kind and it's definitely not worth just brushing off even if you got to talk a little bit about the cheating and uh, and banging scheme that was going on there with the Astros banging on a drum and potentially letting their guys know what was coming in years past. The Rangers have moved on, and I, you know, there was a lot of conversation around the Rangers two off seasons ago, not last off season, but two off seasons ago when they signed Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon to the big time contracts that they did. Uh, those aren't the only places they've spent money. Of course, uh, they brought in John Gray, they brought in Jacob Degrom. There are a handful of other moves that they'd made that worked out really well. Um, smaller moves that have helped backstop them a little bit, both offensively and defensively. I oh and by the way the development of Adolis Garcia as one of the I don't know if you'd call him league's premier power hitters but he's certainly coming close to that and you know in in the series against the Rays at least he rivaled Randy Arozarena for you know big time moments and and big time flash and hitting so Adolis Garcia a big part of that Rangers offense as well it goes to show that you can get this done in a lot of different ways. The Rangers are kind of um, calling cards, I guess, or or exemplars, exemplars for spending some money and addressing your needs that way and filling out the rest with your own development. The Astros are very much on the other side of things, right? They have, uh, for better or worse, developed their own talent, added very sparingly throughout the last seven, eight, nine years. Um, and they had an incredibly bad or or good tank job heading into this whole run, right? I mean, they were absolutely at the bottom of the standings for years and years and years before building it up to where they are right now. The Phillies and the Diamondbacks are in the NL side of things. We saw, White Sox fans saw the Diamondbacks late in the season. They were the uh, second-to-last home series at Guaranteed Right Field. And the way they were playing then was, you know, I I thought good, not great, but they were certainly a tough matchup for the White Sox the way they ran, um, both on the base pads and and defensively a little bit. They've got enough power um, and apparently enough pitching, especially when you can bring Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly uh, out twice in a series, and that's what helped the Diamondbacks. Not that they needed to, but it's what helped the Diamondbacks knock the Dodgers out. Phillies have been, I mean, my goodness, they knocked off baseball's best, the Atlanta Braves, and uh, and are going to play for the right to go to another World Series against these Diamondbacks. And I would imagine, given the way those series went and the uh, the reputation, kind of the big moment reputation that Phillies hitters, Bryce Harper among them, have um, have kind of put their names out there, I, I, I'd be 
shocked to see that they're not the odds-on favorite in that series. So the Twins are out, the Blue Jays are out, the Rays are out, the Braves are out. The Brewers are out, the Marlins are out, and the Dodgers are out. Now there's a couple of notes that I wanted to get to on on a few of those teams, the Dodgers and Twins uh, specifically, because not in this episode of White Sox Weekly, but in uh, a couple to come here, we're going to talk the state of White Sox pitching. Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers, future Hall of Famer, is reportedly undecided about his future. He's been battling shoulder issues a lot of the year. If you watched the playoff coverage on those broadcasts, they were almost incessant about talking about how compromised he was. And I, for one, I'm a big Clayton Kershaw fan. I've really enjoyed watching him pitch over the last, you know, decade and a half here. It really irked me, you know, the whole big game narrative. Oh, you can't pitch in big games. I, I don't know that it works necessarily like that, not in a lot of cases. Won the World Series in 2020, and for all the nonsense uh, that 2020 was, you certainly can't say that those games weren't any bigger in the playoffs. Yes, they only played 60 to reach the playoffs, but then you get into the playoffs. And then all of that is there all over again, just like it's been. All that big game energy that's there the way it's been in every postseason uh, from the beginning of time all the way until today. But with Kershaw maybe not coming back for 2023, that means whatever team might be shopping for free agent pitching or trading for pitching may have to contend with the Dodgers. They've got a lot of injuries and legal issues with Julio Urias um, that may or may not affect their starting five. So if you're looking for pitching in this offseason, the Dodgers may be a team that you've got to contend with. The Twins are out, and it's weird. I know I'm one of those fans that ended up watching the Twins a little bit and rooting for the AL Central rivals because I wanted to see the AL Central do a little bit better. I, I, go, I grew tired of the national comments about what the AL Central was at the end of the year, and I thought that if the Twins were able to kind of pull a 2019 Nationals and shorten the pitching staff a little bit, that they'd be able to get a good run out of things. And indeed they did, certainly better than a lot of people thought that they would um, going into the playoffs. Oh, they're just going to get rolled right out. But the, the Twins have a couple of free agent notes around them. Sonny Gray is a pending free agent, but he told Dan Hayes of The Athletic that he wants back with the Twins. Um, Hayes also went on to report that it is entirely likely that the Twins are eyeing a qualifying offer for Sonny Gray. And, you know, he's pitched much better than just getting a qualifying offer from a team. He had a 279 ERA and 184 innings of work and a FIP, a fielding independent pitching number of 2.84. That's Major League's best, and he's got himself square in the running for AL Cy Young. Here's what Gray told Hayes in The Athletic. He said, I don't know if this is the right thing to say before becoming a free agent, but I'll say it because it's honest. Money is not the ultimate factor for me. Never has been. Having said that, you want to be a valued, you want to be valued appropriately. Sorry. Uh, Gray went on to speak glowingly of his time at the Twins. Hayes writes, he noted that he loves it in Minnesota, adding that his time as a twin has been an incredible experience and that there is something special going on in this clubhouse. That's a quote from Sonny Gray. So, while Gray might be one of, if not the best free agent pitcher on the market, it certainly looks like he wants to get back with the Twins. Now, they don't have just Gray as a pending free agent. Kento Maeda is also 
a pending free agent. Um, on the hitter side for them, Byron Buxton may or may not have surgery on his knee. That's been dealing, he's been dealing with it all season. And Carlos Correa is not going to have anything done with his feet surgery wise. He's got plantar fasciitis. He's been battling that all season long. Um, but he's going to get something done to help a deviated septum, I guess. So that, that could be, I don't, you know, whatever. I, I feel better, I guess. And we'll see you come start of 2024. That's kind of it for the playoff news and notes, but there's another conversation around the playoffs that has got me, I don't know, feeling just like I need to talk about it a little bit. Jesse Rogers of our very own ESPN wrote a little bit from uh, Rob Manfred's comments about the postseason format now and with people like, uh, or teams I should say, rather like the Orioles and Braves, the two best records in baseball having been knocked out. There's a question about the playoff format, and we'll get to that when we come back here on White Sox Weekly, don't go anywhere. It's the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly with Connor McKnight. On the home of the White Sox. ESPN Chicago, Chicago's home for sports. Follow Chicago's home for sports on Twitter at ESPN 1000. Welcome to White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available right now. We're here for the biggest matchups and exciting new promotions throughout the season, including opening day on March 28th. Our ticket plans include great benefits such as a ticket exchange program, special events, savings on single games, and much, much more. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash 2024. Getting back to some of the playoff conversation before we dig into some White Sox-specific stuff here on the show. We've got some rumors out there that we're going to get to in just a little bit. Um, we had been talking about the, the playoffs in, in terms of the format a little bit. That's kind of where we left off. Our very own, well, ESPN's own, nobody owns, I mean, Jesse writes his own stuff. He's fantastic. Jesse Rogers, who you have likely heard on this flagship station many times before, wrote a little bit... Um, off some of the quotes from Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred about the playoff format. Now, we talked a lot about the playoff format when it was um, kind of first I- injected into the mainstream after the lockout ended, what feels like, uh, I don't know, 30 years ago, but also kind of like yesterday. <laughs> it's kind of one of those weird things. Um, but anyway, with the, with the added playoff format, the 12-team playoff format, we have seen in a lot of circumstances, some higher-seeded teams, notably this year the Baltimore Orioles, who had the best record in major uh, in the American League, and the Atlanta Braves, who had the best record in the National League, bounced out of the playoffs. Rob Manfred told reporters it's only year two of this particular playoff format, right? I'm sort of of the view, he said, you need to give something a chance to work out. I know some of the higher-seeded teams didn't win. I think if you think about where some of those teams were, there are other explanations than a five-day layoff. That's a big conversation, right? The five-day layoff that those two teams, the Orioles and Braves, had by virtue of winning their respective leagues and have the best record. Uh, Manfred continues, but I think we'll reevaluate in the offseason like we always do and think about if we have the format right. Jesse goes on to write that uh, it's it's unlikely that the format 
is going to change. Manfred was asked if he's talked to the Players Association about changing the format. It's one of those things where we'd had a conversation about it if we wanted to do something, Manfred said. But I think the most important point is the first one. It's year two. I think we need to give it a little time. We all want the competition to be the best it can possibly be. So I don't know about you, but I've pretty much always looked at the playoffs. I mean, since being like an adult baseball fan. And that's nothing against being, you know, like a a kid and fan of baseball, right? That's a completely unbelievable thing to be, right? And maybe the best way to be a baseball fan is just be a kid about it. Maybe I'm being overly cerebral about this stuff. But I think that the best team in baseball is the team that finishes with the best record in 162 games, right? I I, I just do. I, I think that's your best team. I think the nature of the game, the, the marathon, not a sprint, the injuries, the, the building of depth by an organization, improvement along the way, winning on the margins, being able to do all sorts of things in order to win ball games, all that kind of stuff gets tested out, to me, over 162 games. And then you start the playoffs, and you have a World Series winner. And I go back you know, to the, to the Moneyball quote, right? This is from Billy Bean. I don't know if it was in the book Moneyball. Actually, I do. It wasn't. It wasn't in Moneyball. It was later on. He said, my bleep doesn't work in the playoffs, right? It's specifically referencing the A's lack of success in the playoffs in kind of the middle 2000s, despite um, their run as a really good regular season team. Now, what, what he meant by that, most people would tell you, is that in a short series, all the stuff you do to maximize an advantage over 162, kind of, you know, win in the aggregate, is more difficult to, to see succeed because randomness pops in, right? Injuries matter a little bit more, all that kind of stuff with a short series. And I, I don't necessarily take that away from anything. I, I told you in the last segment that, um, You know, one of my favorite players over the last 10, 15 years or so has been Dodgers lefty Clayton Kershaw. And having Kershaw being able to check off the box of of being a World Series winner means a lot to his legacy as as maybe the best pitcher of his generation. He's going to have to fight guys like Scherzer for that a little bit but and Verlander a little bit too. But he's got the, the World Series ring, which is something that he didn't have that others did. And that's all because of a short series in a shortened season, right? Or at least in part of it. I I also think that, you know, had I been in charge of it, I wouldn't have changed the playoff format like this. I wouldn't have put more teams in. I love that the best teams are in. But when you shorten up this, I don't think there's anything wrong with the results we got. As long as you understand that, that by nature of making this a short series, you are making those better teams more vulnerable to the randomness of the playoffs. And and don't tell me that oh, I got to you know I read some of Spencer Strider's comments after the series when the Braves lost to the Diamondbacks saying well something we're doing isn't working or we've got to be able to address everything we can in an offseason to win a World Series. And while I understand where he's coming from, I would I don't think the Braves have to do anything different. I, I think you do it all over again. I mean, not you know with the same roster, but whatever process led them to building this roster, continue applying that because it's working. And more times than not, you're going to win a playoff series. You're going to win more than one playoff series. You're going to win World Series. And I, I don't know. I, I, I just it's tough, right? What ads do you make to win a short series? 
I mean, sure, there are some marginal roster moves, right? I, I think people in the AL Central remember Quinton Barry, uh, speedster, right? Jared Dyson, uh, Gerard Dyson, pardon. You know, guys like that who were added to rosters that could not hit a lick but were impossible to throw out stealing bases. You know, this is back in an era where they, the stealing bases weren't, wasn't as easy. I, yeah, sure, I guess you could add one of those guys to your roster and then take a bag and maybe win a close game, and maybe that ends up winning you the series. But home runs win series, and, and strikeouts from a pitching staff win series, and the Braves had plenty of those things in the regular season. You just didn't get enough of them in the playoffs. Obviously, it's easy for me to say not, you know, this isn't Braves weekly, right? This is White Sox weekly. But I think this is something that a lot of baseball fans are going to be talking about for uh, for as long as this playoff format exists. Now, the other thing we wanted to get to here on White Sox weekly, and we'll start it now, or at least we'll start it in like two seconds after I tell you that you can stay out of the elements in 2024 because located on the 200 level behind home plate, the Guaranteed Rate Club offers all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and complimentary parking. Plans start at 20 games. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash GRC or call or text 312-674-1000. said we wanted to talk a little bit about the state of White Sox catching, right? There's a rumor out there, Bruce Levine, a damn good baseball reporter here in this town for, for many years, um, has a rumor out, or a, shouldn't say rumor, a report out that the White Sox are interested in, or may be interested, if he becomes uh, available via trade, Royals catcher Salvador Perez. Now, obviously the connections there are many, and the need for a catcher is understandable on this roster. And we'll get into the specific fit there, or, or lack thereof, perhaps, in just a little bit later on in the show, but I wanted to kind of start the conversation about the catching position by looking back, you know, it's the preview review series, as it always is here on White Sox Weekly, looking back a little bit about this, uh, at the state of White Sox catching. Now, obviously, Yasmani Grandal signed with the White Sox prior to the 2020 season. At the time, it was the highest contract, the largest contract that the White Sox had ever given to a particular player that had been surpassed by Andrew Benintendi this prior offseason. I was working a different job at the time, and at the shop I was at, my, my partner was doing a talk show at the time, and my partner and I were on air when they signed Yasmani Grandal. I remember coming back from break uh, in the show and finding the news. I, I, I happened to be the guy you know, on the show, working the show, that saw it first on Twitter, and and just kind of blurted it out, I was as excited as I think most White Sox fans were. This this was a big signing for a team that was pushing in 2020 and 2021. This was a, a team that had been looking for solutions at the catching position, James McCann notwithstanding. Um, but Yasmani Grandal, I think that signing as a 31- and 32-year-old catcher in 2020 and 2021, respectively, this was a push-in, win-now move. And by Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn, as the, which, which constituted the baseball front office at the time, I, I did not find many reasons to dislike this signing. Now, whether the contract aged well or not is kind of, it's definitely up for discussion. And you can see some good things and you can see some bad things and you can definitely see a lot of injuries as you're going to for, a, for an early 30s, a mid 30s catcher, right? I mean, Grandal had caught. Uh, let's see, in 153, well, he played in 153 games in 2019. His career high in terms of catching was, was 2000, uh, 1,019 game, 1,000, 119 games. And with the White Sox this year, he hit 118 games uh, played. Uh, Catching-wise, it's a little bit different. But 
in my mind, this was about signing a guy that you could win with that pushing in. I figured that there would be, you know, some more additions or definitely better performance or fewer injuries for the White Sox in 2020 and 21. And that they'd be just kind of, you know, living with the back end of that deal as you normally do, as most free agent deals are constructed. But with Yasmani Grandal, the rest of the team, you know, obviously we've seen what has happened here over 2022, a 500 finish, and then last year being as dismal as it was, you know, the rest of the team wasn't there around Grandal as his own you know, production diminished some and his availability and, and, you know, kind of diminished in 2022 and in 2023, bounced back and played a lot, but, and, and probably could have, would have had more games played later on in the season of the White Sox been in contention, um, but they weren't. And those at-bats went to guys like Corey Lee and Salvador Perez. So that's where we'll start when we come back here on White Sox Weekly. We'll take a look at some of the youngsters that constitute the rest of the catching as Yasmani Grandal is a free agent and, and unlikely, highly unlikely to sign back with the White Sox. You know, just given that the, the team is in a much more transitory position than needing a veteran catcher the likes of Grandal, at least you would think. But reports out there might suggest otherwise. So we'll get into all of that when we come back. It's White Sox Weekly on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. This is White Sox Weekly on Chicago's Home for Sports, ESPN Chicago. This is Chicago's Home for Sports on app. The ESPN Chicago app in HD, FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM, ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, catch the action from a private diamond suite in 2024. Learn more about our different suite sizes and how you can host your closest friends and family with customizable food and beverage options next season. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash suites or call or text 312-674-1000. We're having a catching discussion here on the show today amidst reports from Bruce Levine that the White Sox may be interested in the services of Carlos Perez if he's made available by the Royals. A couple of years left on that contract. We'll get into the details of that situation uh, or that potential situation in just a little bit here. But I yeah, kind of wanted to start talking about the uh, you know the state of White Sox catching. Talked a little bit about Yasmani Grandal, the Yasmani Grandal era that has likely, more than likely, come to an end. He's, uh, he's going to be a free agent this offseason, uh, and it doesn't sound like the White Sox and Grandal have a whole lot of conversation or have had a whole lot of conversation about a reunion there, which would make some sense. Now, the White Sox did have Carlos Perez and Corey Lee take a lot of at-bats late in the season um, from behind home plate, right? The White Sox carried three catchers for a little while. Sebi Zavala, uh, now with the Diamondbacks, it, it got a lot of time. In the last couple of seasons as well, the Sox have moved on from him. He was DFA'd, picked up by the Diamondbacks. Best of luck uh, to that particular ball club for a whole lot of reasons, none the least of which is uh, Alec Thomas has a lot of ties to the White Sox. Watched him a little bit as a kid. Hey, you kind of root for him. At least I do. Um, Anyway, Lee and Perez, right? Two guys whose reputations have been a little bit all over the place. Lee had a big reputation in the scouting report. I just don't mean like, oh, how do you talk about it? How, how scouts kind of con- converse about him. Lee had a reputation, a, a scouting report that had a whole lot of power, natural power in that swing, just needed to access it in game. And to that end, you know, that means contact, right? 
Um, the White Sox did not get, and, and Corey Lee did not get the kind of performance that you'd like to have seen in the last month or so of the regular season. Lee came up a little bit after the trade deadline, got some time at AAA Charlotte, struggled there some, and struggled with the bat uh, for the White Sox late in 2023. All told for Corey Lee, I mean, it, it's not pretty. He hit 077. He did knock his first big league home run. He was on base at 143 and slugged 138. What you're hoping for, I think, is a little bit of a, a total reset here in the offseason. Lee still has a good prospect ceiling, um, if not an incredibly high one, and at the highest, perhaps, is a White Sox catcher in the system, more on Edgar Caro in just a little bit. But he is 24, going on 25. And you figure, given the fact, I was. I was pretty impressed by his athleticism behind home plate. Uh, the framing needs to improve a little bit, at least given the numbers. Although, you know, I think, too, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, when some of these numbers normalize. And, and I think Lee, Corey Lee's kind of, okay, how, how good of a framer is he? How good of a catcher? From a defensive standpoint, is he really? Um, and to that end, I think he was just kind of at the level or, or right before that some of those framing numbers might start to normalize a little bit. And and to be sure, the numbers weren't exactly where you want them to be. You're looking for a little bit better. But he's also getting used to a new pitching staff. And I think you can make some some reasonable explanations as to why next year could be better for Corey Lee than 2023 was. Now, that's without saying anything about whether the White Sox will add um, some other catching here in 2024, or as we approach 2024, but more on that in just a little bit. Carlos Perez was the other guy that saw a lot of at-bats, or I guess I should say some playing time, because he didn't see a whole lot of at-bats for the White Sox in 2023. He was on the roster for a while, but not really used much. The White Sox preferring to go to Sebi Zavala for a while while he was there, and Yasmani Grandal for a little while as well. Perez did hit some, and I thought, you know, there were some at-bats by Carlos where he had been either just kind of not used. There was an 0-2 count he found himself in in Oakland, middle of the season, and he ripped one down the line for a couple of RBIs, helped the White Sox stay alive in that particular game. But overall, Carlos Perez hit 204 with a 264 on base and slugged 347. Defense for him, not exactly his calling card, uh, but I thought he improved some during the course of the regular season. He did hit a couple, uh, or did hit his first big league home run, I should say, drove in three. Uh, four runs, four walks, 11 strikeouts in 53 plate appearance in 2023. So if, if you're going in to the 2024 season with Corey Lee and Carlos Perez as your primary catching options, you are very, very raw behind home plate. And I wouldn't expect a team that's kind of led in the dugout by Pedro Grifol and, and now helmed in the front office by Chris Getz to be one that's willing to be that inexperienced behind home plate. The White Sox are going to have to remake their pitching staff quite a bit in 2024. And that would mean that you'll also need a a a steady hand on the till from behind home plate. You want a guy that's got a good reputation of being able to work with pitchers, get some called strikes, and maybe you look at the offense and, and say, okay, we're not really concerned about what we can do offensively 
from a catching position, but we are concerned about how we're able to control a running game, which the White Sox have been very bad at for a while now, um, and how we call a game, which the White Sox have been okay at for a while here, I think. Uh, how do we improve those things? How do we make um, immediate transformations behind the home plate to that end? The White Sox catchers in 2024, all at-bats taken by catchers. That's Sebi and Carlos Perez and Corey Lee and Yasmani Grandal all combined. They hit 192 with a 256 on base and slugged 311. That's an OPS plus of 69, which is, I mean, it was not the offensive position that you'd wanted it to be. And and catching for a while now, although it's changing some, slowly with some really exceptional players, catching for a while now has been glove first and, and frame first over what you're able to do with the bat. And I don't know, I, I still lack clarity and I think a lot of people do and I don't think we're going to get it until the offseason comes or rather the postseason comes to an end and we really start to see winter meetings tick up and conversations tick up some I don't really have a great sense of where the White Sox see themselves being able to be in 2024 there's been some talk of being able to push for an AL Central title which given the strengths or lack thereof the division still makes some sense to me but how much can you add at the catching position, to make some marginal improvements or maybe even more than that in 2024. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I I did want to touch on just a couple other guys in the White Sox system that uh, are are here and may add, will do add to the catching depth, but probably won't add to that depth in 2024, at least not at the major league level. Edgar Caro was kind of the big get in the offseason positionally for the White Sox. He came over in the deal with the Angels that sent Lucas Giolito and Ronaldo Lopez that way. He spent 2023 at Double A, and for two teams, uh, both the oh boy Rock City Trash Pandas and the Birmingham Barons, the Angels and White Sox Double A outfits respectively, he had a pretty good season, especially considering that he was one of the youngest players at Double A for the majority of time he was there. For the White Sox, or for the Barons, I should say, he hit 277 with a 366 on base and got on base at a 393 clip. That's been his calling card. The guy can get on base. And exactly how much he'll produce from a power perspective, or I guess an RBI perspective, what you really like to see is that he walks just about as much as he strikes out. For his minor league career, he's got 211 strikeouts. This is going back to uh, his minor league work in 2021. 211 strikeouts, 173 walks. I call that right about even, and I'm I'm excited by that ability, that that plate judgment. I think that's a big, big thing. He is 5'11", listed at 170 pounds. Figure he uh, you know bulks up a little bit, fills out, probably won't get a whole lot taller. So that does kind of limit, I guess, the projection on Edgar Caro. He's ranked the third best prospect on MLB Pipeline for the White Sox. Colson Montgomery being one two years ago, the first-round pick. I should say three years ago now, the first-round pick. And then Noah Schultz, two years ago, the first-round pick for the White Sox being the number one and number two prospects. The Sox did add a catcher in Calvin Harris in the draft last year. He's ranked 29 on MLB Pipeline, was a big-time performer for uh, for Mississippi in the 2022 College World Series, hit 400, two home runs in six games there, missed one the national championship in 2022, uh, and then played a lot behind the plate this spring. A lot of DH, 
A lot of outfield in his first two college seasons. Got some run as a catcher. Sox say that Calvin Harris can uh, can can stay behind home plate. He is 21 years old uh, and figures to be a part of the catching depth as well. And I could be a mover in the system. We shall see. Uh, but those are more kind of conversations about the long term for the White Sox behind home plate. For the short term. We've got to look to some of the rumors, some of the reports that have been out there over the last couple of days, and we will get to those when we come back here on White Sox Weekly. Where could the White Sox look to add? Who could the White Sox look to add? I think the name may surprise you some. We'll drop it when we come back. It's White Sox Weekly on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. White Sox Weekly with Connor McKnight on the home of the White Sox. ESPN Chicago, Chicago's home for sports. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you missed the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White White Sox Sox Weekly. Weekly. ESPN Chicago. Chicago's home for sports. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, be even closer to the action in 2024. Located directly behind home plate, the Wintrust Scout Seats offer access to our luxury club experience with all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and parking. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash scoutseats or call or text 312-674-1000. Been talking all show about the report Bruce Levine had out. Been covering both sides of town for a long time. Now darn good baseball reporter. Darn good guy as well, Bruce. Um, and he's got a report out that concerns the White Sox and a division rival. More on that in just a little bit. But a couple of notes. Uh, we talked about this a lot last show. We had the reports of the White Sox changing around their coaching staff a little bit. Uh, and they made that official Friday morning, just before noon. The White Sox sent out a release, and it confirmed the following changes to their Major League coaching staff. First base coach Daryl Boston and hitting coach Jose Castro will not return in 2024. Bullpen coach Kurt Hassler and assistant hitting coach Chris Johnson have been offered positions in the White Sox player development system. Interestingly enough, it, it does not say whether either of those gentlemen have accepted those positions. Hope they do. They're good guys um, and, and a lot of fun to have around. On a road trip, that kind of thing, hopefully they're able to continue in the White Sox system. But those changes have been made. If you want more on those particular moves, I'd encourage you to download last week's episode. Just go to the ESPN Chicago app, download last week's episode of White Sox Weekly. We talked a lot in our final two-hour show of the season about the changes in the coaching staff and about the offense, most specifically the offense with hitting coach Jose Castro. And assistant hitting coach Chris Johnson, uh, both not returning in their current roles or their roles from last season, Jose Castro being um, released, I suppose, and then assistant hitting coach Chris Johnson being offered the position in the White Sox player development system, uh, obviously moving on to new and different opportunities. But you can download each and every episode of White Sox Weekly at the ESPN Chicago app. One other uh, note, a small note, Brent Honeywell is uh, elected free agency. Honeywell pitched five and two-thirds innings with an 11 and a change ERA with the White Sox. He got got shelled a couple of times, put into some tough situations. Honeywell, a former top prospect with the Rays, 
Went to the Padres, pitched a little bit, mixed results for sure. Uh, Honeywell just got a, a little bit of work with the White Sox as they were looking for, um, you know, kind of starting options, guys who could take uh, some bulk innings out of the bullpen and then perhaps parlay those into starts later on in the season. Guys like Jose Reina and Tuki Toussaint and Jesse Schultz all able to do that. Brent Honeywell, though, uh, was DFA'd and, and has now opted for free agency. So those things of note and just happening in this last little week. The the biggest piece of news is one that we've been holding off for for the last little bit here on White Sox Weekly. We mentioned Bruce Levine, and he had a report that the White Sox tweeted this out, he did, uh, have identified Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield as two potential offseason targets. Now, both of these guys are under their respective club controls. You'll remember them both as Royals, of course. Sal Perez has played for only one team his entire career, came up with the Royals in 2011, and uh, has has been a real good catcher offensively for years. World Series MVP, an eight-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove, four-time Silver Slugger, and the winner of the two th- a winner rather of the 2015 World Series. He is well and familiar with White Sox manager Pedro Grafol. Pedro has talked a lot about, in fact, maybe his, his best relationship in baseball in terms of, of coach and player uh, was his relationship with Salvador Perez in, during Pedro's time as a hitting coach and, and as a bench coach. With this, with the Kansas City Royals, Sal Perez has two years left on his contract with Kansas City, and they are fairly expensive seasons in terms of a mid mid thirties catcher. He's got a year for a little over twenty million dollars next year, and a little over twenty million dollars the season after that. Forty two over the next two seasons, plus a two million dollar buyout for two thousand and twenty six. The results weren't there for Salvador Perez, at least not the way you're used to seeing them in 2023. And 2022 have been kind of the same bag. Over the last two seasons, Perez has played in 150, pardon, 254 games. You've got to carry the one. 46 home runs across his last two seasons, 23, 21 home runs last year, 23 the year before, a 254 batting average, a 292 on base percentage, and he slugged 442 in the last two seasons. That's all coming off the heels of finishing seventh in MVP voting in 2021. He had a major league best 48 home runs and 121 driven in. Those both led the majors, uh, but he has not been that guy behind home plate, at catching being what it is, not been that guy over the last two years. Now, again, this is a report, um, a report of a rumor, I, I guess, and that's that's nothing against Bruce. This is how things get reported at this point in time. I just want to make that very clear. But Perez, when you look at some of the numbers behind home plate, uh, does not fare well either. A negative seven runs framing which places him 44th, pardon, 57th in Major League Baseball around guys like Logan Ohapi, who did not have a whole lot of time behind the plate for the Angels, Shea Langliers, Elias Diaz, you know, toward the bottom of the list in terms of framers in 2023. And framing had never really been his calling card. Salvador Perez also... Uh, ranked 39th in blocks above average. And as I kind of write at that major league average sort of number, he's, he's at negative one. Guys hang out in that zero, negative one, and plus one range. Uh, the best number, Sean Murphy, blocks above average, uh, 16 this year, just to, to get you kind of the, the level set. Alejandro Kirk, uh, Alejandro Kirk had 14 blocks above average. He was second in baseball. And then if you also look at a stat on baseball savant, catchers caught stealing above average. This is the number, it's a little heady here, 
The number of extra caught stealings compared to expectation of an average catcher. It's calculated by the caught stealing league average, caught stealing minus league average caught stealing, right? So it tries to account for how many runs, how many runners you should have thrown out. Salvador Perez was at a negative two on that list. However, on the other side of this equation is noting that uh, Salvador Perez has a long relationship with White Sox manager Pedro Grifol, and if these rumors prove to be something that's actionable over the next couple of months, you could see how a manager is looking to bring in somebody to help culture set, um, help have a, a kind of a bridge, a conversation with whatever the White Sox pitching staff is going to look like here in 2024. More on that in the weeks to come. Um, but this is a relationship that you'd expect could be used to benefit everybody on this roster. The catcher is such an important position here. And if uh, you know this is, this is something that, that goes forward, you could see how relationally this is uh, a building block more than anything else. The, the issue I have here, and, and it, as these are reports, we've yet to see whether or not this is going to be the direction the White Sox go. The issue I have here is that this is kind of, if it's a trade that gets done, Salvador Perez as a trade target, period, end of story, is kind of a bridge guy, right? He'll be 34. He turns 34 in May of next year. He'll be 34. Um, the production, as we've noted here, has kind of flagged some in the last two years. Certainly stuff you can live with. Uh, from behind the plate if you're getting the kind of game calling and rapport that Salvador Perez has long, long been talked about having with his pitchers. Guys love throwing to Salvador Perez. Um, ask the Royals. They, they love it. However, I, I don't know if, if this is the kind of... You'd be adding Salvador Perez probably for just the two years, knowing that in his age 39 season, you're, you're probably buying a guy out. You may be playing less and less behind home plate. There's no positional versatility here, right? It's catcher, first base, or DH. And the White Sox is currently constructed, have a lot of guys that fit that bill, right? Andrew Vaughn and Eloy Jimenez, the rest of their catchers. They're not really multiple positional guys. Not that, I mean, it's like Dalton Varsho, and even he didn't catch a whole lot last year. It's not like you ask catchers to get out from behind home plate. That's incredibly rare. But first base and DH are spots that the White Sox have kind of filled up here. Now, just to mention it, and I think we'll get to the infield next week on White Sox Weekly, but Bruce Levine also did you know, mention, like we said, with Merrifield as a guy that the White Sox have kind of identified as a target. And I want to save some of that conversation for next week, like I talked about. So don't, I'm not ignoring the one part. I just want to focus deeply here on the catching situation. The other thing that... You know, makes me look at this. You know, this report a little bit askance. I guess it's kind of who Salvador Perez is as a hitter at this point, or I guess I should say, over the last two years, maybe even over his entire career, he has a career 300 on base percentage. He has always struck out a lot and walked very little. His career high in walks was in 2021 when he hit 48 home runs. And he walked 28 times. He struck out 170 times. And I don't mind trading a lot of strikeouts uh, for home runs, or at least, I guess, swinging and making a lot of strikeouts if you're hitting the home runs. But this White Sox lineup, as it's been constructed the last couple of years, has been so, the word I've used is swingy. It swings a lot and strikes out a lot. 
And I'd like to think that bringing in skill sets that kind of supplement those things, especially as it regards Luis Robert, right? We talked last week about how Robert is always going to be probably a, a swingy kind of player, a guy that strikes out a lot. I'd like to supplement that offensive skill set with guys that are on base for him to drive in and thus bring the White Sox some more runs. So, you know, in terms of fit, you, you can see it from a couple of different angles for sure. Uh, but in terms of production, it is a little tougher to see when it comes to Salvador Perez. We will see whether or not the White Sox head this way, move that way. All these decisions would be made well after the World Series um, and well into free agency, as both the guys we mentioned in those reports are under contract currently for the Royals and technically for the Blue Jays as well in Whit Merrifield. That's going to do it for us here on White Sox Weekly. Big thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Next week we're back from 2 until 3. It's the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network.